Hi, my name is Archie and welcome to the Reconnecting Podcast. I'll be your host on a journey where I'll hopefully be talking to some of the best minds of our time on topics relating to the philosophy and psychology of mental health. This week's guest is Luke Webb. When injury led him to retire after only three years of playing professional football, he turned back to education. Luke completed his BSc in Sports Science and Psychology. He is now a teacher and the Director of Football at Bradfield College in Oxfordshire. Luke, welcome. Archie, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, as we were saying, nice to be on half-term. The, the last six weeks of remote teaching has been a strain on the head. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine it's not been um, the most conducive to just enjoyable time spent. Well, it's definitely tested the imagination as well, because having to come up with the education program for football at the same time as as my academic teaching in a remote world has been been testing of the imagination yeah definitely yeah no i can i can only imagine you know i've been able to sort of experience it watching my dad do his sort of thing um and you know still going into school to do his remote lessons but you know i can't it can't be easy to you know, be engaged yourself, let alone get uh, a whole class of kids engaged on a topic when they're sat at home. You know, even even I find it hard to sometimes get completely engaged into my work because I sit in my bedroom to do it. So it can, that that sort of lack of separation between work and life um, can can really be uh, a a strain on the mind, as you say. Um, And so to start off, I just wanted to ask you a little bit you know about you and you know who you are where you've come from and you know to start off with we'll start where you started and how you sort of got into football oh how I got into football um well I started when I was about four years old and I have a a six-year-old and a three-year-old now and I I look at my six-year-old and think what how did I start before your age (laughs) Um, it was so young but when I asked my parents they say that I just had this passion for it and was just always with a ball, kicking a ball, playing with a ball or whatever. And I think when I was six years old, I actually went to a residential course for football. And I can't imagine sending my six-year-old to a residential course for a week. That was, it was crazy, but different times back then. And I, I absolutely loved it. And I just played football and all sports a lot when I was younger, like so much. I, uh, a lot of my way of teaching sport now is kind of not to um, do too much with with young people because I just played so much sport and the adults who were in charge of my care didn't really ever pause to think, oh, is this too much? Um, So went throughout my whole childhood loving sport, loving every single type of sport, was at a private school. So again, that's exacerbated even more, as you know, where you're playing so much sport. And if you're good at sport, you're playing in every team <laughs> all the time and you, and literally every day and every day on the weekend. And if you're playing for a club outside as well, you're, you're playing so much. And I played, um, this was before the football academy system got started. I played for Reading Schoolboys, which then became Reading Academy when the academies got started. Um, but it wasn't an academy then. And the coach was actually the same coach, the under-11s coach was the same coach who coached my dad when he um, played for them as well. And after that year, he kind of said the academy system starting, Luke really needs to be in an academy if he wants to progress with his football. So 
I was lucky and I was scouted by a few clubs and Arsenal was the one that kind of when my mum and dad said Arsenal want you, you kind of go, okay, yeah, I'll go there <laughs> because it's Arsenal. Um, I won't name the other clubs because I don't want to be disrespectful to them, but it was, <laughs> and at the time, Arsenal were the best academy in the UK, if not Europe. They're not that anymore, but they used to be. So I was basically all of a sudden going from playing football because I absolutely loved it to playing with and against the best people in the country at my age each year. And and things changed when, when that happened. Not just because I had to travel so much, because obviously I lived in Reading and I went to a school in Reading and I had to travel up and down to Highbury to train and, and to, to London Colney to play matches on a Sunday. But just the whole way, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but the whole way that you're taught um, in such a kind of talent hotbed is, is a bit different to being taught in a school and educational setting. And then I, I just kind of progressed through that system all the way till I was 19, eight, well, just at the end of my 18, uh, 18th year. And, and I got released at 18 and then I became a professional at Coventry City and then was there for a year and then Hereford United. And then, as you said in your introduction, had to retire after that. So that was my my brief journey in football. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you touched on the sort of the traveling aspect and that must have been you know a strain on someone that's you know 18 years old you know that whole like you're growing up then and it's you know a lot to go to school to go to an academy to play matches to do your a levels to do all of these things at once it's a big strain uh mentally and if you're not prepared for that sort of thing it can be i'm sure it, it I wouldn't know, but it, I'm sure it's quite uh, it's quite a big change going into that system. Yeah, I mean, I would I would actually split it into a couple of age brackets. So I, I started at Arsenal when I was 11 or turning 12, and at that age, I was travelling up to Highbury to train three nights a week, sorry, two nights a week at that age, but then getting back at like midnight and going to school the next day. And as you know, the timetable of a private school is like eight o'clock start, six o'clock finish. Um, and on those days that I had to go up, I was um, like missing a bit of school. So I was doing the homework on the train on the way up and grabbing a McDonald's, which obviously isn't healthy to do. Um, and that you don't realize, you just think, oh, that's where I'm supposed to be because that's where my parents have said that I need to be. That's where teachers and coaches have said you need to be there. So you don't question it. And you don't realize the damage it's doing to you mentally in terms of um, how you're approaching learning and also how you're approaching your sport, the, the passion that you have. And gradually as the years go on, you obviously, I mean, as you said, as you alluded to, that those years are the most important years in your development. That is adolescence. That is when you are so confused with everything your mind is like a sponge it's changing all the time and your body's becoming this kind of really stiff board all of a sudden you were very athletic and then suddenly you've got all these hormones that are stiffening you up and i now i look back there was never anyone in that elite institution or in my school who kind of just went are you okay is everything okay how is everything what can we do to help it was just Luke's talented, he's unbreakable, play there, play there, do this, go up there, you'll be fine, 
play for us as well, play for Arsenal as well. Um, we'll get all the accolades, they'll get all the accolades and you're fine because you you're playing football and you love it. And then when you kind of transition into kind of year 10, 11, I actually got moved schools. So I actually went to Bradfield for a year in year nine um, from the school prep school I was at. But then at that point, Arsenal said, um, we're going to send all your team to the same school in London, a state school in London, so you can train more, basically. And in my head, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But then again, I'm thinking, wait, I have to leave the school that I'm happy at, that I've got really good friends at, and that um, the educational environment is really great. I mean, I was an academic as well, and and I remember competing with a kind of three or four of my mates, trying to be the top of the year in everything we did, and it was fun. And then I went to a state school in London where I didn't actually learn any new material in year 10 and 11 because I'd learned all the GCSE material in year nine at Bradfield because I was in top sets for everything. So that year, even though it, I mean, it was terrible for my education, but those two years, but it was great for my social development because I always say it, it showed me the real world. It showed me real people. And I hadn't been around, I'd been around 5% of the population in my prep school and year nine year, whereas 95% go to, go to state school. So it really enlightened me there, but I was, I got really badly injured those two years as well. And then when you then turn 17, so after year 11, you, that's when you get offered a full-time contract. So you basically start working at football. Um, and yes, you do your A-levels, but they're not the number one priority. And the club, as much as they try and act on the, um, surface and to kind of the media that they do prioritize it they really in the, the truth of it they really don't and the best example of that is if there's a training session that they need you for and you're going to miss school or the first team needs you for a session they will say don't worry about school go to the session now if they really put education first they would say you do your education and then you can do that another time and I'd gone from and I did well in my GCSEs because like I said I I learn a lot in my previous years at private school but I went from a really motivated academic who loved to learn and it, I, I was a questioner like I used to annoy teachers because I asked so many questions to my year 12 year 13 year where I worked as a footballer and did a levels on the side one day a week to hating education I didn't want to go to it 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 was like well what's the point like the club that's paying me my money don't care. Why should I care? I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm going to play professional football. And you become this. But I was, a, I was a bit of a snob when I was at private school, but then you become this kind of football snob as well, where you're just like, football is everything um, and nothing else matters and that's okay. But then when you reflect in the years after, you realise, oh my goodness, that was not okay. That was not okay. Yeah, no, I think we can both attest to the the idea that private school is not the real world because it's not um and it never will be you know that sort of that statistic that you put out there it's you know a lot of people think that even even in the uk i was going to say outside of the uk but even in the uk i think a lot more people a lot of people think that a lot more people go to private school than actually go to private school um you know of all the private schools that there are whether it be eton or wellington or bradfield or just any of them it's five percent of the kids that are in school that's five that's that's nothing um and 
so when you're in that sort of bubble because it is it really is you know um you end up in that bubble at university you can end up in that bubble when you leave university in your work life you know and it kind of does follow you around so you know i'm glad i'm i've never been more happy about the fact that i left school to go to the real world because you know i was shown that there's a lot more to life than the rugby clicks and the um and the you know as you say 8 8 a.m till 6 p.m days and saturday school um you know while it can be very beneficial um if you know a child is motivated you know it, it's like it's not it's not magic private school it's not going to instantly turn any child into the prime minister um yeah i always, I always say private school if the reason i would send my child to a private school is for two reasons one is facility which is why i would never send my child to an inner city private school and i've never understood that concept and the second one is network and and that is the horrible truth of it that you build network and unfortunately the world is not a meritocracy which means that network is what gets you ahead um, and that's such a, a sad thing but the fact that i went to state school i'm so glad at that age because i saw that there was no difference in intelligence between state school kids and private school kids. Oh, no. There was no difference not. whatsoever. No. Um, yeah. You know, I I was going to throw my old school under the bus, but let's not do that. Um, but um, touching on sort of mental health and, you know, when you were at school, um, you know, I, I, I don't quite know how long your dad's playing career was, but even at a young age, you were, you know... At, primary school your dad would have still been playing right so he was just he when i was about eight he would have been like 33 and he had bad injuries at the end so he was kind of going from club to club at the end so his prime years are when i was about between being born and kind of six years old so i can't really remember his best years when he was an international and playing for united and stuff yeah no i thought that was really cool to look at but um <laughs> I, I was gonna say did, did, did that ever sort of seep into your life as you got older people sort of knew who you were and then they knew your dad was a professional footballer did that ever did people ever treat you differently you know especially at school you know it, you're young and then someone hears oh this guy this kid's dad played for England and then people want to be your friends you know that that is kind of sometimes the mentality of kids so did did that ever come into play at all yeah, definitely, but not in the re not in the way that most people think. It actually works against me, um, which has frustrated me actually because I don't believe in nepotism in any way. But sometimes you just think, God, sometimes I just wish it would help me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> when you're looking for jobs and stuff, um, but it actually went the other way. I just I remember a lot of resentment from coaches that I had, and. Um, not teammates because they're kids and, and kids don't really understand it, but but adults, a lot of resentment from adults that I was somehow born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I don't know actually whether that was because my dad was who he was or whether I was at a private school because you, you've got to remember as well that in elite football, there's not a lot of private school kids in elite football. So I've always been different. I mean, I don't drink. I don't, I don't uh, smoke. I don't, uh, womanized so I don't do any of the things that are very stereotypical in professional sport 
So I and I'm and I'm quite intelligent. So it's 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 a very I've always been different. So I've learned to to build respect because I'm different. But when I look back, I used to hate people calling me Nielsen. I used to hate it because I'd had those negative connotations towards it. If I'd had positive connotations and got contracts and clubs and been kind of played for like the youth England teams because of it, even though I'd probably think, oh, this is a bit unfair, I'd have probably enjoyed it. But I didn't get that. It was definitely resentment, which is weird. But but I guess that's je- I, maybe it's jealousy. I don't. Know. I think I think that's something that's very strange to to realise when you get older. Um, you know, as a child, you're naive. Even as an 18 year old, you're naive. Um, and to a, I would say a certain extent, I'm definitely still naive to the world. But looking back on past experiences of being younger, you see resentment or you see things um, that adults did that were passive aggressive towards you as a child. And it and it's a very weird feeling to look back on these things. Um, you know, I was at school when my dad was a teacher and, you know, I... You know, looking back on these things, you can see where his relationships with staff may have come into play in my own teaching um, or when I was being taught, you know, and that's not something that's necessarily nice to think about. Um, Not because, you know, it's going to be my dad having a go at someone, but maybe there's not a good relationship there and then they see me and they think of him. No, I I think what you're saying is, is so important when you become whatever you become whether that's a parent or an educator or at some point as an adult you are going to be helping someone younger than you even if it's not your profession and i remember what you as you're saying that i remember one point when i was 14 years old and i got brought off playing for arsenal at the main training ground with loads of people watching and i was playing um with a chance to kind of be promoted up up the team's age group to maybe play internationally as well and my coach brought me off, and I thought I was playing okay. My coach brought me off and just had a massive go at me on the sideline with things like, do you even want to be here? Da, 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 all, all that kind of like old school classic rubbish. And I was just I was just so stay that I don't trust that guy at all. Even if he reached out to me and, and tried to mend that, it would be so hard to because the scars were so deep. Yet... When I became a coach and a teacher, I've I've done that to pupils. I've done that to pupils and I regret it so much. And I do everything I can to kind of circle back and and do everything I can to fix it. And now 11 years on in my, well, 11 years on in my coaching career at Bradfield, I would say I, I don't do that. And if I do do that, I kind of stop myself straight away because I'm learning and I'm getting better, but I, I kind of now understand why he might have done it because he might have been what I was like 11 years ago where where your instinct is to just do that because maybe you've been taught and this is why kind of um, that old thing about abusers becoming um, people who are abused becoming abusers right because it's something you're used to but then you've got to have the courage to look at yourself without um, being yourself so look at yourself as not yourself and going whoa, that wasn't right. How can I do that better? Yeah, no, I like I like that a lot. And you know, that sort of the idea of you're always learning, always learning, you know, you say even 11 years on, you're still catching yourself in these moments and going, right, that's not good. Need to change that behavior. And 
you know, that's a message that can go to literally everyone that you do not need to be perfect right now because no one will ever be perfect. And it's only in the sort of um, pushing ourselves towards being better than we were the day before. You know, that's all we can ask for is just to do the next right thing. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm so fascinated in that stuff. I mean, as I said, I said to my team this year, it was quite funny. I said, guys, so I basically have written, I've, I've written three philosophy books for them. It's like I teach football as a kind of a, a subject. And I've yeah. written a football book, a positional book, and then a psychology book. And it's our syllabus, basically. So we're very clear. And it means accountability is a lot easier because we can, we have things, we have objectives that we can look back on and hold each other accountable to. Um, but I basically said to them, guys, all this stuff that you're learning, all this stuff that I've written, I don't know if it's right, but it's the most right I think it could be right now. And maybe in a month's time, there might be elements of it that I disagree with all of a sudden and we might have to change, but you're just going to have to trust me that I've given you the best of my knowledge right now. And <laughs> I I knew what I meant and I knew the that that actually shows obviously confidence and security and complete and utter curiosity um basically a scientifically literate mindset and and we've been exploring for a long time in this program which is why i love working here because i get to experiment but this there is no right and there is no wrong there's just what you do and then you explore and if you think you need to do it differently in order to achieve something i'm going to use the word better but i don't mean better in terms of right but just differently to solve the problem in a more effective way then you do that so and, and you use the word perfect and you say you can never be perfect the word perfect has been stricken from my vocabulary now like even when you say it i cringe when i say it because yeah. obviously perfectionism as an entity you cannot actually be as good as you can be if you are trying to be a perfectionist because being as good as you can be requires failure to then build but a perfectionist kind of holds himself back from exposing their ability because they don't want to fail. And I, and I love like the tech industry where they bring out an app and it's not, it's not like the way they want it to be, but it's good enough to bring out to market. And then two weeks later you get an update and then you get another update and you get another update. And I love that because that is iteration, continuous improvement in action that these, these young people can see in technology that's how you get it better. Whereas the apps that wait for six, seven, eight months to try and get it as perfect as possible and then launch, it's too late. The apps before are now ahead of them by 12 updates, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I love that sort of analogy of just constantly putting yourself out there, even if you may not be quite ready, because if you keep holding yourself back, you're just going to be behind everybody else. Um, and you know you started touching on the the, the 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 syllabuses that you that you've written yourself to sort of teach football as a as a as a subject which i which i love and i wanted to just ask you where your passion for psychology because i see there's passion there like you're you're talking about this and it's something that is your life you know um where, where did that start for you what 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 was the sort of trigger was it something in you was it an event was it just an a, a distaste for the way that football was taught to you in the end years or was it something else? 
It's such a great question. And I'm gonna to have to take you on a journey here and please butt in if you wanna ask anything specifically on what I'm saying. But when I look back at my childhood and all these things that I'm now teaching myself and learning and going on courses and learning and a lot of them resonate with me before I've even learned them. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And I, and I say to my parents, like, was I like this? Was, did I believe I could just get better all the time? So growth mindset, for example, when I first came across that 15 years ago, I say to my parents, this, this is basically me now putting a term to something I've always done. Because I never believed in natural talent. I always believed you had to work hard. I always believed that I could be anything I wanted to be. And when people say to me, um, oh, you're just very naturally gifted at football, that, that is like a dagger to my heart because I say, how dare you? Like, how dare you say that I'm naturally gifted at football when I have spent thousands and thousands of millions of hours just practicing and loving it and playing? Like, how dare you say that? And that normally shuts them up when and they say that. And I say, these people you think are naturally gifted at things, go and actually explore their story and, and listen to their story. And you will find that even if they're not doing that thing, maths is a big one. So-and-so is just great at maths. But then you explore their story and you realize that over dinner, when they were three, four, five, six years old, their parents used to do puzzles or used to talk about kind of that problem solving type things with them. So they were subconsciously learning kind of mathematical concepts without actually doing it. So that, that kind of thing, I was just like, oh, so did, how did I get that? Because the irony of it, I didn't want to believe that I was naturally like that, right? <laughs> I was naturally had a growth mindset. So my parents just said, you just always wanted to know more. Then I was like, oh, so was I just curious then? But then how did I become curious? And coaches have, have been annoyed with me in the past and I've not known why. And then when I've been an adult and I've gone back to those clubs and said, did you to another person, did you know why so-and-so was just, like, didn't like me? And they went, oh, what, didn't you know? And I said, no, I didn't know. I was a kid. How did I know? How do I know? And they said, oh, in coaches' meetings, they used to always say, oh, that Luke Webb, he just always asked so many questions. And in my head, asking so many questions was my energy. It was my exploration. It was my treasure hunt of knowledge. And yet I was being perceived as that was a bad thing. So I was, I was thinking to myself, where did I get this stuff from? Now, where did it really ignite? I had this dream that I wanted to be a professional footballer. But yes, to play football because I loved it, but also to make millions of pounds so I could then buy a school and turn it into a place of excellence where every child who went there, whatever their passion was, were allowed and, and supported to become excellent in that without the expense of their social development or their psychological development. So basically helping young people become excellent, not excellent at something, but excellent problem solvers, excellent people. Now, when I retired, I had no money, obviously. So I thought, okay, what, what can I do here? I'm gonna have to infiltrate a school. So I did. So I got a job in schools and now I've, I've created what I would consider is what I wanted to try and do, but within a school at Bradfield. Um, but where it really ignited the psychology, when, it, when I started putting language to these ideas I had was at university. So, like I said, I played professionally for a few years and then I got really badly injured and I was just like, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And I, and I met an old teammate of mine and he said he was doing a degree at Roehampton University 
that was funded by the Professional Football Association. So I was like, oh, wow. And it, it almost, it was almost like um, that curiosity just got ignited again that I'd missed just being around people that could make my mind better. Like when I was playing at Hereford in, in League Two, we used to train, the ter- training was terrible. Then we used to finish at like 11, 12. Then we used to go into Hereford Town Centre, which if you've ever been there, it's not great for a 19 year old to go to Hereford Town Centre. And we used to sit in Costa Coffee and go to the bookies and play on the roulette machines, then go home and play Call of Duty or Pro Evolution on the PlayStation. And after about three months of this, the honeymoon period, I was like, wow, I'm, I actually feel myself becoming a Neanderthal again, like regressing back to caveman times. And I actually started writing a book, just just a novel. I just started writing a fiction novel, just get go into my mind and just explore my mind. And I still actually have that. I wrote about 60,000 words and I, I haven't finished it yet and I haven't gone back to it since then, but I just had to do something. So university gave me that. And I did three years there and it was bliss. And actually, when I left there, I was exhausted academically, as everyone is when they graduate university. But I missed just having those lecturers around me that, and I was a mature student, so I wasn't there to party and kind of do all those things. I was there to learn. I just was like, yes, give me more information. And the sports psychology modules in year one, I just fell in love with. I was like, wow, this is, this is what I've wanted to do. And then I studied them more. And then when I got a job at Bradfield and got my degree, I then experimented with all these theories. And if anyone says to me, how do you become a better coach or a teacher? Get a job in it and just experiment with it and get a job where you don't have to adhere to someone else's syllabus. Yes, you have to adhere to a framework, but where you can experiment with learning. And, and the book I sent you, I mean, that is 11 years of experimentation. And I think I've, I've come up with quite a, a decent way of kind of educating how to learn and educating people's character because i heard you say this in one of your previous podcasts the how and i'm just interested in the how if someone says to a kid you need to work harder which is the absolute classic that a teacher would say you've just got to work harder and you'll be better right i'm like what how though how do you work harder and that's why i studied deep practice that's why i studied curiosity um how you need to go and talk to your teacher about the grades they've given you. You need to go and have those conversations. Yeah, but how? They are really difficult conversations to have. So that's why I teach vulnerability and integrity and compassion and accountability. So it's, it's all these values that rather than saying, like, I hate it when businesses have these values up and go, these are the values we stand for. And then I'm like, okay, so how do you, how do you teach them? They're like, what do you mean teach them? <laughs> it's like, well, you can't have values if you don't teach them and then hold those people accountable to whether they are actually living those values or not. And the last bit of my story, because I know I've been going on for a long time, is my, my students actually asked me this question, not that exact question, but a similar question. And my answer to them was, I realized when I was younger and then as I got older that, yes, my passion was football, but my bigger passion was how I was treated in football. So it didn't have to be football. It was just football for me. But it was actually, am I in a group environment where there's connection that is actually happening? Am I in a group where I feel like I'm being helped to get better? Am I in a group where I'm being challenged and not just being told that I'm good for the sake of it? And I realized 
that I was more passionate about that than football. Now, if I had that and football, which I had for one year in my life when I was 14 to 15, then I was had pure joy. But since then, I haven't had that in football or any workplace that I've been in. And that is why I'm trying to create that for any staff that work for me and any students that I teach. So, so yeah, I, I think that answers your question as a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I seriously appreciate you sharing that story. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot in there to unpack. And, um, you know, um, I I had a little read of the, the book that you sent me. And, you know, it's, it's truly something that could be applied to anybody's life. Um, you know, listening and learning to those values and seeing how they apply to you in your own life is such an important thing. Um, it's something that is so integral to a human as just a, just a human being, um, you know, from curiosity to vulnerability, you know, in, in this day and age where one in three suicides are, are are men aged between 18 and 25 having a teacher explain to me that one of the things they teach is vulnerability touches me so deeply because it means so much to me to know that the generation that I'm in that is even younger than me you know for anyone that doesn't know Bradfield goes all the way down to 13 for boys and girls to be being taught this from a young age that these things are okay to feel okay to ask questions is so important and I can't thank you enough for being that person because more people like you need to be teachers and more teachers need to be like you you know I my, my dad is a teacher and he's been there for me for the last eight years as I've gone through my journey of mental health and you know there are things that he's learned in his teaching um that I can see he's applied to me as his son and things that he's learned as me having me as his son that he probably applies as being a teacher um and so it's it's really it's really nice to see that we are making a difference not only you know, I think a lot of the mental health conversation stems mostly from my generation, but to see that there is, you know, the older generation are are picking up on it and not only picking up on it, but being voices for change. You know, you are a voice for change in the education system, you know, um, not to call you the older generation, but... Uh, uh, the generation above me anyway it's, it's, it is a great it's a great point Archie but the, the thing is I'm trying to think of the best way to put this okay so there, there are, are many amazing teachers in the teaching sector but I would say they're not taught this stuff as teachers so if you do a PGCE you're not taught how to teach vulnerability you're not teach how to this is the one that gets me you're not taught how to teach, how to learn. Now that's the one that gets me, right? So you're going into education and you're not taught how to learn. And don't get me wrong, I didn't know either. I didn't know, but my curiosity and, and my like kind of always thinking, how can I do it better? Took me to that place that I 
I've come up with those six things that I would call my learning syllabus, like holding yourself accountable, deep practice, curiosity, growth mindset, feedback, those kind of things, right? Where I think they're the values. If you, if you kind of lived all of those values, you would learn more efficiently, working hard was number more efficiently, more effectively. But then I've got to teach how to do that. So I've got to learn what those things actually mean, not just the terms, not just, that's why I kind of hate the term growth mindset now, because so many schools use it but they don't do it, but they say that they're a growth mindset school. And so for me, it's the education, not just to the kids, but of, of the, the staff as well, because I know they're such intelligent people. They're great people, but you don't know what you don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And that, 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 but that brings me to a question I even wrote down. I said, I wanted to ask you, you know, as a teacher yourself, where on the scale of you know most to least important things that a teacher should know other than what they're teaching the kids because you know that's probably quite a important thing to know um how important is this training and this knowledge imparting this knowledge onto teachers of how to identify that a kid is having a bad day how identify someone is maybe not in the best having the best day you know especially with the online uh like teaching that we've had the last six weeks for these kids um you know from from everything from you know seeing a kid and he might be a bit down to you know as you say teaching a kid how to learn you know i was never taught that i was told when i when i asked when i was asked oh what's the best way to learn this for my exams they would just revise that's great. What's, what what is revision though? What what is learning? Like I I never knew. So I did past papers and I highlighted things and I never found anything that worked because I was never taught what might work for me. So you know as I as I'll keep saying this, but having these conversations and doing this podcast, you know I'm I'm learning a lot about what needs to be done. And you touched on. The, the how point that I make and it's the point that I make to everybody that I talk to about mental health because there's no how without the why you know um how are you going to learn the only way you can teach someone how to learn is by learning why they need to learn you know if you don't need to learn something there's no point in learning how to learn it because you're just wasting your potential of something else it's the same with you know your feelings and your emotions, especially for me, you know, growing up, you're, you're taught if you're sad, you can go for a walk or do some physical activity or, you know, you're given sort of a list of generic subjects or generic things that you can do to make yourself feel better. But we're all different. The way that I make myself feel better is different to how you make yourself feel better. And so learning the why helps the how and then the how can be put into place. Um, because I'm sure yeah I, i'm sure you know sorry exactly and before, before no, i was gonna say before i answer your question about the, the priority um what you're saying there is spot on and that's why when i was exploring this stuff and was coming up with these learning values there was something missing there were because it wasn't enough for me to be able to teach them actually how to learn i had to find out what their differences were right what, you, what you're saying so then i was like okay how do i do that and it's just constant, like, how do I do that? How do I do that? So I was exploring that, exploring that. And that's why I separate those character ones. So those character ones, like the vulnerability, the empathy, connection, integrity, compassion, 
they're the ones that if you learn how to do those things as a teacher and as a student, you have those conversations more often. And there's no fear in those conversations anymore. And it almost becomes normal to have them. But what I found is, yes, you can have your microcosm within a school of your culture that you've created in a class or in a football team that has them. But if, if the institution as a whole or if society as a whole doesn't have that as its kind of foundation and actually society's foundation is um, kind of shy away from those conversations or don't have them in case your reputation will be damaged or you need to protect yourself, then it's so hard for these young people to, to do it in, in your environment. But you have to give them permission and you do. And I've had 11 years of old, kind of we call them OBs, as you know, in uh, Bradfield private school, who they're just amazing young people now. And they're 25, 26, 27. And it really gives me hope that, like you said, I, I, I'm doing this in, in the school in my little microcosm. Um, but that is actually having an effect. And it actually leads me to the point where some people say to me, why are you working in a private school? They say, you could help so many more people if you worked in a state school. And I've reflected on that a lot. And I'm, I'm obviously only one person, so I, I can't work in both in, kind of institutions. But I'm actually at the moment, I'm OK with working in a private school because I think I can actually help more people if I work in a private school, because in a private school, rightly or wrongly, a lot of the people I'm educating will be the leaders in an organization or at least kind of middle management in an organization. And we know that most stress, and actually the guys in, in one of your um, previous podcasts said this, most stress is caused from work-related issues by poor management and mismanagement of people. So in answer to your question about priority, when I became a teacher, I um, obviously I, I'm a teacher and I consider myself someone who can teach anything. So just give me a subject and give me a bit of time to learn it even if I've never done it before, and I will then teach it. So for me, as long as I, I know more or I know enough of the syllabus that I have to teach to teach it, I can teach it. So I, I actually think the subject content is needed to a certain extent in terms of you knowing the syllabus you're teaching. But if you're an intelligent person and you're used to kind of gaining knowledge, you can do that no matter what the level is. Obviously, if I was asked to teach quantum physics, I maybe wouldn't be able to do that. That might be above my level. But anything up to A level, I think I would be confident learning any kind of subject if you gave me enough time. Um, so for me, I, I would put that at the bottom. <laughs> I would put subject knowledge at the bottom because it's, it's not my subject knowledge that enables me to help a young person achieve in whatever they want to achieve in. And annoyingly, that's exams in our education system. But let's say that it's the way I say it. So it's the way I say it to either inspire them or for it to sink in or to say it in a different way for you as opposed to your classmate. That is my skill. And also to, to be there when and, and to give them permission to challenge me back because I I hate it when when my students are silent like they're sitting there silently and i know they're not learning if they're sitting there silently because they're obviously not thinking or if they are thinking they're either, they either don't care so for me there's two reasons why people don't ask questions they either don't care or they're scared to ask questions and neither of those two things are good so every single time my students do not ask questions i hold myself accountable and i try and think 
what can I do better? And then that collect that ownership, that me owning my part. I remember having a conversation with a teacher and a student before. A teacher was higher up in the hierarchy than me and a student. And the student wanted to kind of complain about me in terms of the way I treated him. Because um, I'm very challenging, right? So students sometimes don't like that. They want easy street. So he, he was saying that. And my response in the meeting, I, I owned every single thing that he said. I said, I'm really glad you're saying that to me because that's going to help me become a better teacher next time I'm dealing with this situation. I didn't, I didn't put anything on him. I just owned every single part and I thanked him for saying it. And the other teacher after the meeting just said to me, I've never had a meeting where a teacher in this situation has just taken complete ownership of the situation. And I said, well, I'm only doing that because that's how I'm going to learn. Obviously, I'm hoping now I have another conversation with that student where we explore it together and see, I, I hope he would hold himself accountable as well. And if he doesn't, that's my job to hold him accountable. But that ability for me to get rid of any pride I have or this kind of I'm a teacher, therefore I'm right thing. Just get rid of that and just accept that whether I'm right or wrong, it's always my responsibility. And I can always learn something and own my part. And if I can own my part, I then give permission for those young people to own their part. And then the conversations we have are amazing amazing conversations truthful conversations they they ask the questions they want to ask i always say to them if, if i'm boring you in a lesson you must tell me i'm boring you like please tell me and they say to me what you, you'll never accept that like no teacher lets us do that and i said but i am saying you can do it there's obviously a difference between a sabotage question where you're doing it to where, where there's no aim to know more from that question and I don't like those questions, obviously, where you're intentionally sabotaging the class. But every other question, go for it. Let's just go for it and let's explore it. And as I said in that book, when I came across Brené Brown a few years ago, she calls it rumbling. And that language, I love rumbling with vulnerability, kind of leaning into that. So I say now, if, if, if a kid kind of is upset with the mark I've given them or won't actually say it, I say, come on, let's have a rumble. And then it gives them permission to say what they want to say. And normally they say, I just don't get why he's got this mark and I've got this mark. And I say, okay, let's unpick it. Let, let's explore it. I think this is this, this is this. What do you think? So, okay, I agree with what you're saying there, but not this because this is this. And I say, yeah, but what about this? this, this? And you just keep going back and forth. And eventually they're like, oh yeah, I get it. Thank you. And you've learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, open dialogue between anyone whether it be a teacher and a student a manager and an employee friends family is so important and you know what you've just explained is the ability to hold people accountable and create boundaries for yourself towards other people and other people towards you you know in life it can be very easy to just sort of roll over and let other people have their own way because it's easier confrontations are not very fun it never is but treating confrontation before it even happens is what you're doing by opening the dialogue by opening the conversation to your students uh i'm sure in your personal life like i know for me in my life if someone has an issue if someone wants to have a conversation 
let's have a conversation because there's no time we don't we, we don't have time in this world to sit and be upset with each other and you know talk to another person about it, the person that you should be talking to it, it, it doesn't further us as people in any way shape or form and you know it's a valuable lesson for anybody listening to think to themselves when i have an issue with someone or i think someone has an issue with me do we have an open dialogue do we have the ability to converse on this because as you say when you can talk about it you often talk yourself into the solution you know or you say something and someone will mention something from before and you'll go oh no i'm wrong or oh they'll go oh i'm wrong and it's 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 a beautiful thing because none neither of you come out of it feeling like you've lost anything you feel like you've only ever gained something from that conversation because you know going into a situation like that again with anybody else you'll know what to do you'll know if you're about to be wrong and you'll think back to that conversation and it won't even have to happen again exactly and 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 the how right is the key because because a lot of young people realize what you've just said but then it's the step of actually how do i have those conversations and that i, I love that like let's actually i love teaching them how to have a, a rumble or a conversation. And you know, the hardest thing, the hardest thing to do is to have a conversation like that or a rumble with someone else who does not know how to rumble or have that conversation. That is the hardest thing. And actually they're the conversations we probably want to have more than any other conversations just to get that off our chest. So again, we've explored what that looks like, what you have to kind of look for, how the kind of things you should be looking to say or respond. And the, the biggest one is obviously in that situation, just understanding you're not responsible for the other person's behavior. So if they cross your boundaries, that's that that's their choice. You don't have to continue the conversation, but the whole point of the conversation is that you've got off your chest what you wanted to say. And actually what, what you're saying there about, I think you're alluding to compassion as well. And I don't know if you've read Kim Scott's work on compassion, um, uh, a book called Radical Candor. I would very much recommend you read that. I've been exploring that recently. Um, and she's the ex kind of CEO trainer of Apple and Google CEO. So she's she's come up with this model that has care and challenge as the two variables. And in that model, there's obviously four um, quadrants. And the ideal is care, high, challenge, high, right? So if you care about someone really well and you challenge them truthfully, that is the ideal way to treat people. And that is what she calls radical compassion. The, the one you were saying about earlier just then, where you care about someone, but you never challenge them. She calls that ruinous empathy, which I absolutely love, because that's basically what my mother does to me. That's what my mother does to me, right? She, she, no matter what I do, she says that I'm amazing. And in my head, I'm like, come on, mom. I'm not, I wasn't amazing then, but I can't, I'm in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, but thanks though, because you're my mum and your job is to love me no matter what. So that's great, <laughs> but it's not helping me learn. The one where there's no care, but loads of challenge, she calls that obnoxious aggression, which I love. <laughs> and that's basically what most managers are like, right? They, they don't really know how to connect with you and care about you or, or some teachers, right? So they'll just be really kind of challenging. You have to do this, you have to do that. It's not on time. That's not good enough, do this better and all that stuff. And then the last one, which is the worst one, no care and no challenge, she calls manipulative insincerity. Now, what I love about analyzing this and experimenting with it is the research shows obviously that the best one for productivity and joy and happiness 
is radical compassion, obviously. But the second best one, which I found fascinating, is obnoxious aggression. And the reason that is, is because at least you are being told the truth. Now, you might feel like crap and you might kind of feel like you hate your boss or your teacher or whatever, but at least you have the information. And if you are able to reflect, to then go and build on that. Whereas ruinous empathy doesn't give you any information. So that actually is the is worse than that. And obviously manipulative insincerity is the worst. But I, I love those kind of models where you can then actually experiment with it, explore it. And in my own personal life, I'm like, I was in professional football. That was the one of the most abusive kind of industries verbally and emotionally you could get. There was no HR in, in professional football, but they were obnoxiously aggressive. So I can see why I preferred that for when I then went into a different kind of workplace and they were ruinously empathetic. Like I hate ruinous empathy. Like you've got to tell me what I need to do to improve. Now in my culture that I create, yeah, always, in my culture that I create, and I'm, I'm working, I keep working on this, but if you can get that care where I'm taking the time to get to know them and I want to understand them and I want to know how they learn and I, I want to understand kind of what makes them tick and what they need from me and, and do they need support? What, so when I do something wrong, my first response is, what can I help you with? How can I support you rather than you muppet, you've done that wrong. But then I'm like to challenge them as well, where they actually feel that every day, that self-actualization, where they're waking up every day thinking that when they go with Mr. Webb, by the end of that session, they are going to have something that they're going to use to get better. Like to know every day that you're waking up, knowing that you're going into a place, knowing you will get better by the end of it. That is liberating. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs where self-actualization is at the top. It is, it is freeing, but without that care, you don't feel that connection. So adding them both together, I'm only doing this in my microcosm, but imagine if we could do this on a bigger scale in institutions and also in society, our society becomes more enlightened. We are constantly having conversations. The news would be different. The, the way people get kind of sacked constantly for making one mistake would have to change. Blame would be eliminated from society and it would just be accountability. And don't get me wrong, there comes a point where if someone's making the same mistake over and over again, they need to leave an organization. But if they leave with radical compassion, they'll probably thank you for leaving rather than being um, annoyed at you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love those terms and I'm definitely going to check that book out. And I think the, that you've used them to perfectly explain the sort of different um sort of friendship styles that there can be even um you know those sorts of things will show up in every form of life um from you know being at school teacher to student and i think the one that i'm always most interested in is you know family and friends you know the uh, ruinous empathy i think it is that you said that's when you have a friend that will never tell you that you've done something wrong. And that's a seriously damaging thing, you know, because it it doesn't hold you accountable for being a bad person. And, you know, I don't use the bad person thing lightly, you know, because sometimes you are a bad person. As it's just a human being, you do something that's not good to another human being or, you know, in just an act that you may do and... You know, you might have a friend that just goes, "Oh, that that was just banter. That was that was that was crazy. That was really good fun." 
but you not you might need that little devil on the shoulder telling you no you're a bell end do something do something properly next time don't you know and and that sort of balance is always required in every part of your life you know and whether it be the what was it ob obnoxious um yeah obnoxious aggression you know sometimes that is the only way to get through to people you know um and it's not to say that that's the one that you should be defaulting to because it's not but it's it's being able to consciously switch between these things for the right scenario and using them in the correct way so that you can help someone so that you can help them identify where they may have made a mistake because you know as you say you want to we could, we could eliminate blame and there'd only be accountability you're not being ruinously aggressive like you're not being you're not sorry i've got it completely wrong there but um yeah obnoxious obnoxious something but yeah you're, you're not doing that to hurt someone's feelings you're just doing that to hold them accountable for the mistake that they've made you know in my job i am eternally grateful for my boss who is fantastic and they will they, they would never send me a message going you, you, this is wrong and you know have a go at me the only time you know the, the times that i've got things wrong i've only ever got a message that says this is wrong make sure you don't do it next time and i'll you know and then you apologize and you don't do it next time you remind yourself what exactly and what's really interesting about that is is because obnoxious aggression is normally the default people go to obviously if you if you're obnoxiously aggressive you're just challenging people and then to move into compassion you then have to show care right but what normally happens is people are obnoxiously aggressive with people then they that person reacts in a like hurt way which is normal and then instead of then moving towards care which would then move them into the compassion quadrant they actually stop challenging them because they don't want to hurt their feelings and that moves them into then then there's no care and no challenge and that moves them into the manipulative insincerity so even those people who as bosses can challenge people and have the courage to challenge people they tend not to have the courage to then care about them and all these things all these things we're talking about compassion empathy vulnerability integrity trust these i challenge anyone in this world to understand those concepts <clears throat> without studying them i don't think anyone understands those concepts or how to do them without studying them i am still learning how to do them i've been studying them for 15 years and i'm still learning how to do them so when i look at someone who's never studied them or never even taken the time to read up on any of this stuff or experimented with it with someone i kind of have that assumption of positive intent they're doing the best they can but i can't expect them to truly understand how to build trust or how to be vulnerable or how to truly be compassionate like people say to me compassion oh that means helping someone no 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 it doesn't like you said actually that true compassion has boundaries and you can't just say the right thing to someone because that's what they want to hear that's not compassion that compassion involves challenge at the same time so i think in answer to your question earlier about the teaching we have to put this in our education and we have to study it because this is more complex than maths french science english football music whatever and actually this is going to have the greatest effect on the survival 
and the productivity and the progression of humanity than any academic or sporting or musical subject we would teach. And that is why I don't put any of those subjects on a pedestal. I don't think any one is more important than the other. But the one thing that is the most important above anything else, you can call it pastoral care, you can call it, call it well-being, whatever you want to call it, psychology, it is that. That is the most important thing in learning. And that should be the number one thing we teach in schools to our young people. Yeah, you know, in the eternal words of Cat uh, Stevens, you know, he says something like, from the moment I could talk, I was ordered to listen. And, you know, that 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 lyric just makes a lot of sense, you know, you know, like you're, 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 you're taught as a kid. Oh, my God, they said their first word. And then you go to school and you're told to shut up. And you're like, oh, well, that was pointless. I might as well just be a mute. But I, I love it as a parent that I, because I'm so explorative, I'm looking at my kids growing up and I'm just checking myself every time because your natural instinct is to say no. And yes, sometimes there's got to be boundaries, but it's like... Can we have ice cream for supper? <laughs> Maybe not tonight, yeah. But then but then it's like opening up that conversation with them. And so if I go, if my daughter, my three-year-old is doing a puzzle and I go in to the room and... And she doesn't see me, so I just kind of watch. I do this sometimes because I'm a crazy scientist. I'm watching her and she gets it wrong and there's no one observing her. And she just kind of figures it out and tries to work out to it better. And she she does it differently and then she builds it differently and it's now a bit better for her. It goes wrong again and she keeps building, right? And And she's having a great time and she's exploring. If I go in there, first of all, if she sees me, so even if I don't say anything, if she just sees me, and she gets it wrong, I see the shame coming over her face. I see the, oh no, I've let you down. So I have already, as her father, built an image unintentionally because I'm desperate not to, but I've done it just because of my lack of understanding where she thinks she needs to impress me and therefore block her learning. Now, if I go in and I actually say, no, no, Violet, that, that, that's not right, do it like this. If I say that, that's game over. Like. There is literally no chance then that she will engage in the curiosity that she was engaging with before. And I, I would love, I've, I've contacted universities before, they've never kind of got back to me, but I would love one day to kind of explore. And I know you, you spoke to an amazing professor in your last podcast, right? I would love to explore this. How do we, how do we keep them curious? How do we not destroy their curiosity? Because what I'm doing now when they're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 is trying to unpick all the bad education they've had that has just told them, don't ask questions. No, you can't do that. Rather than having a scientifically literate mind where everything they approach, they go, hmm, I wonder if it could be done like that or like that. Because a lot of people think that when scientists, true scientists, find a solution, they go, Eureka. But that's, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the best astrophysicists in the world, say, that's not what true scientists do. When they found something out that works, they suddenly go, hmm, I wonder if I do it this way, if that will happen, or should I do this or do that? And they're constantly exploring it. And if you find joy in the exploration, then your life becomes joyful. Like true joy is engagement. I used to think joy was happiness, but I don't think it is anymore. I think true joy is engagement in something. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with that and you know I it it took me a long time to sort of get to the point where I wanted to ask questions again I was very content with just the idea of uh being me um 
and then you know i got to the point where i needed to make a change and then i got you know i i call it being annoyingly fog free in the head and uh it is it, weird you know and i wanted to know why my brain did certain things and so i picked up a book and i read about it and i i challenged myself to think of things that would be different had i done something different or if i had done something a different way and you know i read a book called lost connections by johan hari and that's pretty much the inspiration for this podcast and the name um and it really shows that as a society we are poisoning our children mentally with an idea that we have to be strong if we're men and not show emotion and that women should be one way and you know as you say we 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 we're told what to do from such a young age that we lose the ability to question why we're doing it and it's so sad to see you know as you as you mentioned i spoke to uh, dr robert hipak uh, yesterday and um he studies you know the early life of kids and he says it's it's magical you know to to watch their behavior and i can only imagine what that's like you know and as a father you know it's you know you're not a mad scientist to do that i'm sure as any parent would probably attest to you know it's it's a beautiful thing to watch a child try to figure something out for the first time or just try to figure something out that they don't know because that's what being human is you know that that that's the that's the most pure essence of what we are as as beings we are creative and problem solving creatures um and so as you say it is imperative that we get these things into education because we're not doing any favors to anyone by just allowing kids to just go through education in a mediocre sense and just assume that what they're being taught is right you know i got to 21 before i even realized just even realized the things that i had been taught about my life and about the way that i had grown up were wrong and so intervening and let's not even say intervening because we shouldn't have to intervene starting their education from a point where questions and emotions and feelings and all of these things and values are central to what they are doing with their life is is key to as you say humanity furthering themselves properly yeah and 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 actually what you're alluding to there the so for me it's spirituality right so if you go right back to the start spirituality not not in this kind of hairy fairy way where people get scared when you say spirituality and they think you're a, a guru and walk around in sandals all the time not that spirituality i'm talking about real spirituality where a human being's longing to want to improve themselves i mean that's ultimately what spirituality is right through connection they want to connect now if you go right back to that source like you were saying that instinctive source of a human being and then you look at every system you have created in a society surely an enlightened society would then say okay which ones are stopping that which ones are stopping that so if i look at the education system as an example exams are stopping that so what has really frustrated me about this pandemic 
and the education system is, is actually what seems to be the narrative is that exams are being lauded at this, as this amazing thing because now we haven't got them. People are like, oh no, it's the only way to assess people. They're amazing and I wish we had them. The conversation should have been going the other way. I'm, they should have been going, I'm so glad that we haven't had exams. We've needed to assess, look at this differently. There's too many people that are disadvantaged and it's not a fair assessment of intelligence. And also it's not allowing intelligence to be built properly because it's through no, through no, I'm not going to use the word fault because I hate that word, but it's, it's teachers can't help it because you have to be very enlightened teacher to go against the grain basically, because they are being judged by that syllabus that they're, they're teaching. Even those schools that say, we don't care about exams, we're going to teach the person they still want to be judged by that. And, and by the way, you, I love performance. Performance is really important and learning how to perform is important. So you can have a system of examination and still teach an enlightened generation. You can do that. It just requires all the skill sets we're talking about that we've discussed in this, in this episode so far. And people aren't doing that. So that for me, like you start right back back at the beginning and, I, and that's where I start with everything I try and put in place all the systems I call myself a systems engineer so every system I put in place is is ready to be kind of lacerated and torn down by one amazing question or one amazing insight but I always go back to what do human beings need and what do they want am I delivering that and if I'm not then I change um, and I think are we, have we gone too far to be able to do that? Of course not. I mean, that thought of have we gone too far is is the complete opposite of what we're saying. A true curious mindset would be like, okay, we're where we are now, we did the best we could. Now let's look at it differently and let's see. Let's see. I love that. Let's see. I mean, I'm, I could talk a whole hour with you on self-importance that I've just come across recently on a recent podcast I listened to, which is linked to curiosity and this whole pressure like, you know, when people say, like I was talking about performance, they say, you've got to perform under pressure, right? You've got to learn how to perform under pressure. And I was, I was told that all my life because I, I was, I've been in an elite environment. And those people that haven't been in an elite environment, I always say, find one as quickly as possible because it does change your life. It's like you see human beings doing things at a level that you didn't think was possible. And that, that is unbelievable, even if it is a horrible environment, just to see it. Because then you take that to everything you do. But... People would say to me, the best way to deal with pressure is to be under pressure as much as possible. Like eat pressure for breakfast, like, do it all the time. Yeah, I kept doing that. And before a match, when I was a professional, I would spend hours on the toilet. I would be sick sometimes. I would be so nervous, physically nervous, that my muscles would get so tight and I'd be shaking, which would mean that when I actually got to the game, in the warm-up, I felt exhausted because my body had been exhausting itself with nerves. And I could never get out of it. And I was in so many pressure situations, so that wasn't the solution for me. So as a coach, I went through this all, all the last kind of 15 years where, <clears throat> if, and sacrifice. So kids say to me, oh, but I don't really want to do this, son. I'm like, if you want to be good, you've got to do that. Or um, if you want to learn to play under pressure, then we've got to put you under pressure. But I came across self-importance recently. And it's that the, the concept is basically saying this whole kind of pressure, judgment and expectation that people think the best people in the world are something 
are able to deal with those things actually might be the other way around. It might be that they're the best at getting rid of those things. So the question of what does the best in the world have, let's say footballer, let's say I'm trying to be the best footballer, what does the best footballer in the world have that you don't? The answer is nothing. And I don't mean nothing in terms of we're the same because we're not, they have a lot more skill than me, but nothing in terms of nothing is in their way. There's no pressure, there's no judgment, there's no expectation. And then you explore it more and you go, okay, how? Okay, I understand what you're saying, but how? How do I do that? As, as me as an individual, how do I do that? And it's self, self-importance. So self-importance means like kind of the I. I need to win. I'm going to win. I'm better than them. I can do this. All that crappy self-talk that we're always taught to say before we're going up against an opponent that we don't know the outcome. Basically vulnerability, right? That we don't know the outcome. And there's no way you can say I'm going to win because you don't know the outcome. But people say it and they say, this will give us confidence if we believe, right? Self-belief, we can do it. But this new concept is really making me think because it's it's basically saying that those, those teams and those people that are constantly saying that are actually the most insecure. And the ones that are the most secure, i.e. the most dangerous opponents, are the ones that don't have self-importance. And they just say, okay, I've worked really hard in the week. I've practiced all this, this. I've looked at the opponent. I've, I've done all my kind of work all my work, all my technique, my tactics, all this stuff. Let's just see what happens. And then the kids would say to me, yeah, but sir, that means that they're not working as hard if they're that mentality. I say, are you joking? They're working even harder because when they're out on that pitch, if something goes wrong, they don't think, oh, I thought I was better than him or I need to be better than him. They think, why did it go wrong? Okay, maybe I need to do this next time. Maybe do that. Let's see. Let's see if that works. And they are becoming so intelligent on the spot to solve the problem on the spot. So I'm now experimenting with this mindset and I might, I might have found it. But then I think every year I think I might have found the answer and then there's a new thing and I, I love that journey. <laughs> yeah, no, like I think self-importance is something that that we're, we're, we're intrinsically taught self-importance, but at the same time at your sports day in primary school, you're told that it's the taking part that counts. <laughs> yeah. we're, 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 given these, we're given these incredibly conflicting arguments on what matters and then we can never really work it out. So is it the taking part that counts or should I be the best? Um, and it's and it's really, really damaging um, to kids, you know, especially telling telling them that it's the taking part that counts. You know, I don't like that. Um, that's, that's not something I'm ever gonna tell my kid, you know? It's like, if you're, if you're, gonna, go, if you're gonna enter something, be the best at it. Exactly, and also if we're not teaching our kids how to perform, we are doing them a disservice because when they do have to perform and everyone has to perform it in some sense, whether it's, just asking a, a girl or a boy out, right? That is a performance. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be, everyone does it. And so if we're not teaching them how to perform and saying it's just the taking part, then you're doing them a disservice. If you, if, yeah. It, and, it, and I think the the idea that brought that whole sort of thinking into, into play was that, you know, the taking, it's the taking part that counts because you don't need to be a winner, buddy, blah, blah, blah. Because when you, when you tell a kid you have to you have to be the best i'm not saying you have to be the best you have to try to be the best you know it's not the taking part that counts it's the trying that counts um you know you're not going to enter something just to come second you know you're not going to try to just be a participant you know you're going to try to win you're going to try 
to get that boy or girl to be your girlfriend or boyfriend you know you're going to try to get that date you know you're not going to go in going ah oh, it's okay i'll be all right it's fine um you are going to aim you're going to aim for the top and you know what's really important to teach people especially at a young age is when you're aiming for the top there are so many factors and I think this is what you this is similar to what you were talking about there, there are so many other factors that are out of your control in a football match there are 22 people on a football pitch you're one of 22 people that could affect that game there are so many things that you can't do that would affect whether you win or not yes you might score the winning goal yes you might make a brilliant save you might do something amazing but at the end of the day the only thing you can do is your best in that moment and work out if you're not doing your best what you can do better so this whole self-importance thing that you brought up is great because this whole like idea of i need to do i i i i and me 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 you know it's it's not really conducive to helping anyone at the end of the day you know when in anything whether it be a job interview or a football match do the best you can and know that you've done the best you can don't be complacent don't lie to yourself going oh yeah i definitely trained hard enough or yeah i know everything about this company no really get to know yourself really get to know the company that you want to work for really get to know that girl or boy you want to ask out you know and when you do that thing if it doesn't go your way know that you did everything you could in your power in your world for it to go right and the fact that it didn't is not your fault we seem to blame ourselves so much you know and that's where all your nervousness would have come from when you were a professional footballer you're you're throwing up because you're instantly blaming yourself before the game has even begun you're blaming yourself for all these things that could go wrong that aren't in your control therefore they don't need to be you know you can hand them over to someone else exactly you know and I, i've got two questions for you so first one on on some of the language you just used i completely agree with everything you're saying but the language of try kind of hit a nerve with me because for me if we're going to truly hold ourselves accountable you can't try you either do or you don't and if you kind of change that language to everything i've done i'm either doing it or i'm not you then get some really good information back to then do it better or differently next time and my second question to you would be i'm fascinated to understand you're a very enlightened person i'm fascinated to understand what you think of my definition of excellence so through my exploration i don't i have now and obviously i don't know if this is right or wrong it's just the best i've got at the moment i don't think excellence is being the best um you can be against others and i also don't think excellence is the best version of you you can be either so i don't think it's either of those so what i think excellence is i think excellence is a skill just like all these other values we've been talking about, I think they're skills that can be learned. So I think excellence is the ability to find solutions and then transcend your environment. So whatever environment you have, you use the resources in that environment, whether that's teachers, educators, books, whatever, peers, friends, whatever, to then transcend it. And then when you transcend it, you move on to a higher level environment and you keep transcending it. And and I think if if, if I view excellence like that, one, I can teach it. 
So there's no, obviously, self-importance attached to it. It's not about being the best you you can be. And also, because then you've limited yourself. If it's the best you you can be, that's a limit. And true curiosity has no limits. And obviously, the, being the best in your environment is a load of rubbish because your environment might be terrible. So just because you're the best in that environment doesn't mean you're the best. So now I can teach excellence. I, I just didn't, wanted to know what you thought about that definition. So I'll go first question first. Um, and to to quote Mr. Miyagi, you karate do guess so, get just like great. Um, you know, I, I, it, to, to, to say try, I do mean do. Um, you know, I think, you know, as, as, as you say, try comes with the connotation that you just did okay, that you just were like, oh, I tried, uh, I'll do better next time. No, I, when, when I, you know, when I say try, I mean do, you are going to do that thing to the best of your ability and know that you have. And I think the biggest thing that comes with this, that, that trying doesn't come with, is holding yourself accountable for the fact that you have done the best that you could you know when you go for a job interview or you do something that is meaningful to you that you want to do well in you can't lie to yourself because the only person you're kidding is you you know and that that's not helpful to to anyone especially like the person that's doing it um and so it's 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 being conscious of the fact that you are 100 committed to doing the best that you can with the tools that you have barring all of the other scenarios that could happen so that yeah so yeah I, I agree that try isn't the best word but for lack of a better word i'm using try instead of you know it, it is a way of just saying to do the best you can in any given scenario and i would i would agree with your with your second question in that excellence is something that is like perfection we're told that it can be achieved and then when it is achieved you've done well um and there's nowhere there's nowhere to go um and i liked that you sort of pointed out that being excellent somewhere doesn't mean you're excellent somewhere else um going all the way back to the start of the podcast you said you know you went from being a really good footballer to just a footballer because you were in amongst all the other really good footballers you know, it's the same when you go to university. You go from being the really smart kid at school to just the kid at university because you are surrounded by kids as smart, if not smarter than you. And so it's being able to identify the fact that excellence is achievable in every scenario. And by achieving that excellence at that level, as you say, you can transcend it and go above. The analogy that I would use is someone starts working in a kitchen and they are the dishwasher and they see someone chopping veg and they go, I could chop veg better than them. So they get a job chopping veg. Then they see the person above them prepping the fish and they go, I could prep the fish better than them. So they prep the fish better than them and they get a job doing that. And then you go up and up and up. You know, it's it's identifying what you could do better with the tools you have with the in the scenario that you're in to go a level up. Um, and you can repeat those steps and as you say teach it to someone to then apply it in your own life and raise yourself above and beyond what you believe is possible yeah and, and that that's why I, I see excellence in something so let's say excellence in an activity like football or cooking to be different 
to being excellent. So having the skill of excellence. So I might be excellent at maths, <clears throat> but I might not have the skill of excellence. So if you put me in a different environment, I might not be able to survive and progress. Whereas if I had the skill of excellence, I would always be thinking, who do I need to ask? How do I need to ask? I'll be good at asking questions. I would go and find out the knowledge I needed to find out in a new environment and I would progress. And, and that's why I really like distinguishing those two things because if I was going to employ someone, the number one thing, if they actually understood what I was talking about on the job spec would be, if you're excellent, I'll hire you. Like if you if you have the skill of excellence, I will hire you because it doesn't actually matter what your skill is, what you're good at. All that matters is that you have the skill of excellence because you'll learn what you need to learn when you're here, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, as someone that is in a job that I was never trained for, I just found it and, you know, applied for it and got it. I am a big believer that if you are motivated to be excellent in that field or you, as you say, have the skill of excellence, and it's about, you know, holding yourself to a higher standard than is achievable. In his Oscar speech, Matthew McConaughey said that he was asked once who his hero was. And he said, it's me in 10 years. And 10 years later, the same person asked him, who's your hero? And he said, it's me in 10 years. And he said, have you not, have you not reached that? And he said, no, because the person that I want to be in 10 years, I'll never actually be able to achieve because it holds me to a higher standard than I'll ever be able to reach. And that is brilliant you know that is that skill of excellence that is that inherent ability to adapt to your environment to become the person that you need to be in that scenario you know i have no idea what accounting is in the grand scheme of things anyway i've got pretty good at it over the last year i, I understand what my job is it's a good thing and um but i'm still learning and I still want to learn and I still want to be good at all of these things that are coming my way because it, because I know it could take me somewhere. Um, so on a, on a slightly different tangent, I wanted to ask you sort of about, you know, I think we, 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 we pretty much covered it and the idea of, you know, pastoral care and these values being uh, part of the education system. Do you think at the moment, there's enough of a push towards identifying, you know, mental health issues or, you know, things that aren't a visible injury being put on the same level as a visible injury. You know, a kid has a broken arm at school and he can't write so he can use his laptop in class. But if a kid's having a bad day and he says, I'm having a bad mental health day. If I said that to a teacher, I'm not even going to say that I'm, if I said that to a teacher at school, I would have never ever had the confidence to ever tell a teacher that i would say that at so if you have a physical injury like a really bad one like the example you gave you go to hospital right and you go to a specialist a surgeon a doctor or whatever um, and you get treated and i think in what's well, definitely the school that i work in and i think in a lot of schools they have professionals like counselors and therapists and um, now, now, nowadays. And I think that obviously needs to improve and needs to get more of a system of that in place. But I think what we cannot forget is the level below that. So if we're gonna compare it to a physical injury, if you get a cut on your 
finger or something, you don't go to hospital and you don't go to a doctor. You just go to an adult who you trust and they will give you Savlon or a plaster, right, to put on it. So these mental health issues that are happening more and more, well, have always happened, but we're becoming more aware of them now. They are the ones that are not being taken care of. So I, w- I would call it kind of, I mean, I've called it performance tutoring in the past. It's basically a higher level of tutoring, pastoral tutoring in schools, where teachers need to be better than just being a teacher who is someone who is there for them. They need to be more skilled than that. And actually, I think, I would hope, I would hope that all coaches in sport get taught to be performance tutors as part of their training. And I would hope that all teachers in the future get taught to be that as part of their training because I think we've alluded to it earlier that having a good let's say they're called performance tutors having a good performance tutor support system may actually not only help or stop or prevent people getting to those really serious mental health issues um, but will also help them become more enlightened to then help others at the same time as well so I think that layer cannot be forgotten about when we're going to decide or as we're deciding to implement kind of mental health care in schools. I really like that. And I like the analogy of it being, you know, you just going to an adult, you know, and seeking that assistance. Um, And, you know, it ties in nicely to everything that we've been talking about and that education that it's okay. You know, it's a safe space, you know, and uh, it's a, it's, it's enlightening for me to see that there is change going on. You know, I think as a, as a 21 year old kid, I'm a bit nihilistic. I'm a bit pessimistic about the world. And, you know, I'd like to, I'd, you know, you'd always like to hope that there are, there are people like you um, and, you know, I'll, I'll back him and say people like my dad that, you know, are in the education system. And as I'm sure you get to see on a daily basis, other teachers, that are there for their students and it's it's really a thing of beauty and I, I really appreciate you know you being that sort of person that sort of performance tutor um to to sort of round off our conversation what is there that if you could put anything out into the world right now what would you what would you want to say oh wow I thought you were going to ask me that one that you're deciding to ask to every one of your guests but you've thrown me with that one there <laughs> So anything I want to put out to the world? Well, I think I've, I've said a lot of um, stuff in the podcast already about systemic change and stuff like that. So I think I'm going to say, for me, I think kind of shame. So the, the feeling that we're not worthy, the feeling that we're not good enough in something. I would, I'm not a researcher, so I haven't got any data on this, but I would, put out there that that is one of the most common starting points of mental health issues. Um, And the best antidote to that shame is uh, the ability to communicate it. And obviously how you communicate it and to who is something you need to consider, but communicate it to someone, even even if you have no one else as a starting point, and then be curious and work out who the best people are and and try and find, if, if you don't have enlightened people around you, try and find one, just do what you can to communicate it. There are many other things that then go into dealing with that shame. 
And also it's important to realize we're never going to get rid of shame. So as human beings, inherently, we, I, I, I didn't understand why this was, but I've, I've read a, a reason why this might be in a recent book, uh, Sapiens, you've probably read it, but it's a great book to read, um, where he says about, the author says about, um, we were very quick to come to the top of the food chain in evolution. So lions and sharks, like you look at them and they're very majestic creatures and they kind of own their majesty, right? Because they've been at the top of the food chain or they were at the top of the food chain for millions of years. And I think we've been at the top of the food chain for about 70,000 years. And that makes sense to me that every time in our psyche that we get into a position of worthiness or let's say power, um, we don't think we're worthy. Like we don't, it doesn't have to be power actually, that's a bad word. So it might be in a relationship with someone, we don't feel we're worthy of love, right? We don't feel we're worthy that someone would care about us that, that way or, or whatever it is. And maybe that's why it is, because I'm trying to work out why that is inherent in us. It might be our evolution. So this kind of building up this shame resilience, because we're not going to get rid of shame. We're just, we're not going to, because it's from our evolution, but building up the shame resilience, how do we deal with our shame? Communicating, being vulnerable, um, being empathetic, understanding empathy, understanding vulnerability, understanding compassion, understanding trust, under learning about all these things and then doing them. And then if we get them wrong, so what? At least we're doing them. And then we, we hold ourselves accountable and try and do them better next time. And we just keep on this journey. We could, I mean, all I'm like you. I mean, I see the world and sometimes I, I just want to stop thinking about the world because it's just so broken. And when people say, what's the solution? There isn't a solution. And what I'm saying here is not the solution, but it's going to help if we had <clears throat> an enlightened population that was able to communicate their shame and accept other people communicating their shame constantly where and where we also assume positive intent from everyone where we just believe that everyone is doing the best they can even if they're doing terrible things because then we can actually help them and, and educate them so i would i would say our ability to deal with with shame and become shame resilient would be the thing i'd want to put out to the world that's amazing that's uh yeah that's definitely something i'm going to reflect on over the next couple of weeks and uh probably over and over as i edit the podcast but uh yeah no i i love that and um yeah i think that's a great place to leave it for for the time being um thank you so much for for your time luke and uh i hope you have a lovely rest of your your half term well, thank you. I've enjoyed this so much. So thank you for allowing me to talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Reconnecting Podcast. If you've been affected by anything that we've discussed in this episode, please look to the description where I have left links for you to be able to find help. As I always say, pick up the phone and you'll never know what could happen. Love you all and I'll see you next time. Bye bye.